welcome to the Point of Impact podcast with Rick McDaniel. Thanks for joining us today. Get ready to be inspired and motivated to live a high-impact life. Now, here's Rick. Before we jump in today, I'd like to talk with you about the podcast. We've had several episodes now, and in order for anything to grow and have an impact, we need help. I've started a lot of things in my life, and I I know that you got to have people's help and assistance if you're going to make it happen. And so I'd like to ask for your help. If you've been listening to these podcasts, I'd ask you to become a subscriber, to subscribe to the podcast so that uh, we can build a base of, of subscribers. I'd ask you to share on social media and with your friends. Hey, I'm listening to the Point of Impact podcast and Rick Daniel's been talking about success. It's really interesting stuff. It's really helped me, can help you. And reviews are great, like, you know, on iTunes where there's an opportunity to write reviews. If you would write a review, you know, I'd really appreciate that. In fact, here's what I like to do. The first 10 people who write a review of the Point of Impact podcast, I'm going to send you a free copy of my latest book, Turn Your Setbacks into Comebacks. So all you have to do is just write a review and then take a picture of it and email it to info at rcc-impact.com. That's info at rcc-impact.com. And just say, just enclose the, you know, attach the pic that shows the review and just enclose your address of mailing address where you want the book sent. And I'll send you a free copy postage paid the whole nine yards, my $15 best-selling turn your setbacks in the comebacks book. So if you'll write a review, I will do that. Hopefully you'll subscribe and you will share and we will just keep motoring along here in terms of expanding the influence of this podcast. It's been interesting to watch. I thought my Tom Brady podcast would be number one, but actually episode number four and I believe that's episode number three, episode number four so far, has been number one, and people are joining us from outside the United States, which is great, and I'm excited about that. So if you're joining us from outside the United States, it's uh, great to have you as well. So today, we talk about something a little different, and that is the power of words. And talking about success, but as I, as I said when I first uh, started this podcast, I would, you know, pause from themes like success or happiness to or overcoming stress, whatever it might be, to hit on some other, I think, interesting topics and things that are certainly important. And I think that words are important. Now, I understand that I'm a speaker and a writer, so words are a big deal to me. I get that. But I do believe that it's not just me, that words are powerful Words have incredible impact. And when you think about language, you know, what is it that sort of makes us human beings? Language is what separates us from all other living things. There is something very unique and special about language and about the the power of words. And I think it's worth taking a little time to just kind of consider words and phrases, how they impact our lives, how they shape our thinking, how they uh, 
dictate what happens even culturally. And I, and I also think that it would be fun to just kind of look at some words and phrases and, you know, kind of figure out how did we get here? I think you might be interested to hear some of those stories that, hey, you know, how did some of these phrases come about, you know, when people say things like turn a blind eye or hit the ground running? I mean, where does that come from? Like, we don't mean those things literally, and yet we use them all the time. And I think it'd be fun for you to just think about, like, you know, what do you, what do you talk about? Like, what, what do you like? like? Like, for instance, I love to say the phrase vis-a-vis, especially with my wife. I just like to mess with her. And, <clears throat> you know, I'll be talking about something and uh, I'll, I'll just bust that out. You know, I'll just bust out the phrase vis-a-vis. I like to say it. I, I like how it sounds. But a little later in this podcast, I'm going to tell you exactly where that phrase comes from. And I think you'll find it interesting. But let's just begin with this, again, this idea of the power of words. That the way we phrase something has power. The way we use words is significant. Rhetoric is the the fancier word. I spent my uh, last degree of the three that I've earned in that field of speech communication and rhetoric. So it's something near and dear to my heart. But rhetoric really is just talking about how words are used, how language is used. And words affect attitudes. They affect behavior. And I think that they affect perceptions. And it's just something we almost take for granted. And yet at the same time, it's absolutely true that words have impact and maybe more than we even realize. Let me share with you a fascinating study that was done. 2001, two marketing professors, Gavin Fitzsimmons and Baba Shiv, did a study in which subjects were told in advance that they would be asked a purely hypothetical question or questions. One group was asked if strong evidence emerged from scientific studies suggesting that cakes and pastries and other sweets are not nearly as bad for your health as they have been portrayed to be and may even have some major health benefits, what would happen to your consumption of these items? Hypothetical. Subjects were told that the study was about the effects of a change in environment on how consumers express opinions about products. And so were directed into another room and offered a choice between snacks placed on a cart between the rooms, chocolate cake, or fruit salad. Could have your sweets, your snacks, or fruit salad. Another group, the control group, was not asked any hypothetical questions at all. In the control group, 25.7 people chose the cake over the fruit salad. Now, in stark contrast, subjects, contrast to this, subjects who were merely presented with the hypothetical question and no further elaboration, selected cake 48% of the time. Merely urging subjects to think carefully before we respond to the question 
to prepare to justify their answer, later increased cake selection from 48% to 66%. I mean, is this just kind of coming through to you? So let's just round up 25.7. So 26% in the control group chose cake over fruit salads, about one in four. So about three in four did not. And then the people who had been asked the hypothetical question, just hypothetical, that, you know, if studies were to suggest that cake and pastries and sweets were actually not as bad for you as they supposedly are and maybe had some benefits, those people who were just asked that hypothetically, the power of words, it went from 26% to 48%. And then suggesting now to subjects to think carefully before you respond to the question, increase their choice from 48% to 66%. So from 26% to 66%. Now the subjects were clearly unaware of having been manipulated by the hypothetical question. Because listen, without exception, they denied that their preferences or their behavior were influenced by the hypothetical question. When they were interviewed afterwards, they said, I had nothing to do with it. Every subject maintained that his or her choice was unaffected by being asked a hypothetical question, except that it was. It went from 26% to 48%. And then when they were, when they were pressed on the idea that now, you know, remember what we talked about this question, it then jumped all the way up to 66%. So what does that study tell us? It tells us about the power of words, about the significant impact that words have. When you think about words and phrases and you think how they change over time, I mean, the dictionary is always expanding, but also about how the phrases then impact our culture, it's pretty remarkable. Let's just look at a few phrases that are common today in our culture. Let's, let's look at the phrase same-sex marriage. 15 years ago, in 2004, 60% of Americans disapproved of same-sex marriage. 15 years later, 60% approved. So from 60% disapproval to 60% approval. So what happened in those 15 years? How was there a 20% shift? And you may have your thoughts about, you know, this, that, or the other, but here's what I believe. I believe it comes down to not totally one thing, but here's the primary thing, the phrase marriage equality. For years, marriage was between a man and a woman. Everybody knew that and it was not questioned and the majority of people believed that's the way marriage was. Then a phrase which was introduced, marriage equality. And all of a sudden, the whole idea of two people of the same sex being married was taken out of the context of, is this a normal thing or a right thing or a moral thing? to is this an issue of fairness, of justice, of equality. And when equality was brought into the mix, it, it tipped 
it was the tipping point. It changed people's thinking, some people's thinking about it. And they thought, well, this is an issue of equality now, not an issue of, say, morality, but just an issue of fairness. And so we're going to change our thinking. Now, again, 60% disapproval to 60% approval is not a massive change, but it's a significant, it's a change in, in majority, from majority disapproval to majority approval. And I think that it has to do with the phrase marriage equality. How about the phrase toxic masculinity? I wrote an article about this uh, a few months back, the, this idea of toxic masculinity and what I consider to be the, the unfairness of, of taking the entire uh, male gender and slapping the word toxic on it. But isn't it remarkable how this phrase has, has risen up? Now, certainly things like the Me Too movement have accelerated it, but it is amazing to, to think that such a phrase about half of all living people, men, are now slapped with this terminology, toxic, that the misbehavior, the bad behavior of a small, small minority of men would turn around to be impacted to the point where the, there's a phrase like toxic masculinity. It's just, it's really remarkable if you think about it. How about something like um, mansplaining while we're sticking with the, the males? Mansplaining. Now there's a word that feminists have coined, and when they feel like uh, men are uh, taking a superior position intellectually or about a particular subject, they have a word now to kind of counteract it, mansplaining. It's, it's remarkable. It's amazing. How about something like virtue signaling? When Bob Bennett wrote his book on the book of virtues, the, the, the virtues that are in that book are really not the virtues that are being referred to when someone uses a phrase like virtue signaling. It's just a small, small grouping of virtues that are being talked about. But this idea that you could even use a phrase like that, virtue signaling, and that these are people that are now saying, you know, we're, we're prom promoting a particular ideology, frankly, generally political, not solely, but generally political in nature, and tying the word virtue, it's a virtuous, it's a very important word, tying that in, it's just amazing, really. It's remarkable how things like this happen. Words and phrases that end up really impacting people's relationships. How much damage is done when people demand that you use words or phrases their way instead of asking, well, what do you mean by that word? What's that word mean to you? And what does that word mean to me? Toxic masculinity for me is a highly offensive term. It's just completely unfair. And I don't think it should be used at all. And if I could have a discussion with somebody, I'd explain why I think, and this is what I wrote about, why I think you can have a, a proper understanding of masculinity 
that removes anything about toxic whatsoever. But when people just sort of talk over each other and they don't bother to try to understand how words are powerful and the damage that can be done with words and how it is that people have to be willing to understand where another person is coming from and not demand that they use words, a particular type of words or particular phrases. So words are extremely significant. I believe that absolutely with all my heart. And I think it's so valuable for us to just ponder the power of words and to understand how words, as I said before, really do impact attitudes, behaviors, and perceptions because they positively absolutely do. Now, let's go back to this, uh, you know, my favorite phrase vis-a-vis. You know, what, what, what's that all about? <laughs> what is that phrase? It's, it, it comes from Latin by way of French. Uh, it means literally face-to-face. It, it was used first when people would be in these horse-drawn carriages and there would be two benches in the carriage and people would sit on either side and, and essentially sitting opposite of one another. And so that's where this, this phrase originates. Now we know today it means like, you know, like in relation to, vis-a-vis, in relation to. But that's the, the history of it. And you may have your favorite phrase, you know, that, that you like to use uh, or favorite words that you like to, to use which is fine, which is, which is great. I, and I think, I think it's important to understand where did these phrases or where did some of these words come from? You know, what's the history behind them? Because I think that helps us in terms of communicating with one another better. So let's just take some time to, to look at some of these phrases and learn a little bit more about where they originally came from. How about the phrase, turn a blind eye? In other words, to ignore evidence or, or reality. Where's the, where's the origin for something like this? Well, it's said that during the Battle of Copenhagen, which was in 1801, British forces flagged Admiral Horatio Nelson. He was a one-eyed naval hero, and they wanted him to stop attacking a fleet of Danish-Norwegian ships. Nelson held up a telescope to his blind eye and said, I do not see the signal. So he attacked anyway and won the battle. (laughs) His superiors wanted him to stop. He didn't want to stop fighting. So he held the telescope up, not to his good eye, but to his bad eye. He turned a blind eye and attacked anyway. That's where the phrase to turn a blind eye comes from. How about the phrase hit the ground running? The phrase is linked with the invasion, D-Day invasion of Normandy in World War II. It was used to depict Nazi troops hitting the ground and running for cover after the shores were invaded by the Allied ships. There are those who believe that the history goes back even farther, back to the end of the 1800s, 1895, when in a story that was published in newspapers called King of the Liars, The phrase, I knew I had five more cartridges, so I hit the ground running and squatted low down. So maybe it started back then, although certainly the D-Day invasion would be the one that 
gives it its most uh, noticeable and noteworthy connection. How about a phrase like butter someone up? You know, to, to flatter someone, to praise them excessively. Where does that come from? It was a tradition in ancient India to throw balls of ghee, which is clarified butter, at sculptures of the gods requesting favors from them or forgiveness. So throwing these balls of butter. Similarly, a Tibetan custom that dates way back to the Tang Dynasty, which is like in the 7th, you know, 7th, 8th, ninth centuries, included making butter statues for the new year in hopes that they would bring uh, peaceful and, and, a, and a happy new year. So here's your phrase, to, to butter someone up, throwing these <laughs> balls of butter at God's requesting favors, forgiveness, making butter statues in hopes of happiness and joy. That's where it comes from. How about a phrase like balls to the wall, you know, to give total effort, you know, total, total commitment with no caution. This phrase probably started in aviation, referring to the use of uh, the, the, the levers in military aircraft, pushing the throttle, and on the top of the, the levers in, in these military aircraft was a ball. And, you know, in, you see in old sports cars, for instance, saying, I've got a sports car, got a little convertible, Alfa Romeo, it's got the ball on top of the, the stick, so the ball on the top all the way to the wall would produce maximum speed. So balls to the wall, the stick, pushing the stick, pushing the lever all the way to, uh, to maximum speed. That's where that terminology or phraseology comes from. How about another phrase like give the cold shoulder, you know, not being sort of unwelcoming. Where does that come from? In England during the Middle Ages, a host looking to, say, get rid of somebody to, you know, get a guest to kind of go home would often serve the guest a, a cold piece of meat from the shoulder of pork or sheep or beef as the way of communicating that was time for the guest to leave. So that's where that comes from, to give a cold shoulder. It's like, hey, you know, it's time for you to go home. The night's over and here's a cold piece of meat as a shoulder of, of, of a of a pig or, or, or a cow or something like that. And that message is it's time to, time to move on. How about the phrase, eat humble pie? You know, where you have to kind of uh, offer an apology, be sort of acknowledge your humiliation. During the Middle Ages, manor lords would host feast after hunting. And they would be served the finest cuts of meat. But guests of a lower status were given a pie filled with the intestines and innards. Ugh. Receiving it, and, and by the way, these were called umbles. Umbles. So receiving an umble pie, like silent H, receiving an umble pie was regarded as humiliating because it told others in attendance that you were at a lower social standing than, than others. So this is where eating humble pie, humble pie comes from. It comes from this idea of the umbles, the intestines, the innards of, of an animal and the finer cuts went to the rich folks and those of lower standing. That's where that comes from. How about the phrase, 
go the whole nine yards, you know, to go all the way. Where does that come from? Ten yards, I'm a football guy. Ten yards is first down. What's nine yards? Not first down. World War II fighter pilots flew fighter aircraft equipped with nine yards of ammunition. When they ran out, it, it represented that they had used all their ammunition in an effort to take down their target. So that's where the nine yards comes from. Go the whole nine. Go the whole nine yards means all the ammunition has been used up. Giving it everything I've got. How about this phrase? Straight from the horse's mouth. You know, you hear that phrase. What's that mean? You know, somebody, you know, with direct knowledge or trusted source. It comes from horse racing. Gamblers seeking inside information about which horse might win. The most trusted sources are those from the inner circle of the horse, the stable workers, the trainers. The suggestion from the horse's mouth indicates you're, you're one step closer than the inner circle. You know, you're, you've gotten as close as you can get to having the inside info, to really having someone who's a, who's a trusted source that has direct knowledge. How about the phrase pushing the envelope, you know, to, to do something dangerous or risky? This aviation phrase was made popular by Tom Wolfe in his novel, The Right Stuff. It refers to the area around a diagram called the flight envelope, which shows an aircraft's capabilities regarding load and speed. If speed or load exceed the diagram's area, they're considered to be outside the safe range for operating the aircraft. Test pilots would push the envelope by flying near the boundaries, pushing the aircraft past the diagram limits, the mathematical diagram limits of load and speed. So that's where the phrase push the envelope comes from. How about crocodile tears? You know, that's a phrase you hear, you know, sort of false sorrow, superficial. The myth that crocodiles cry while killing and eating their prey comes from the, the 14th century book called The Travels of Sir John Mandeville. Among other fabrications, the book describes these serpents slay men and eat them weeping and they have no tongue. The tale of crying reptiles was later used by Shakespeare and the phrase became a popular idiom around the 16th century. So just sort of a made up story. How about the phrase let to let your hair down, you know, to sort of relax, loosen up. During the Middle Ages, aristocratic women wore their hair up in elegant fashions. And then when they were home and able to relax, they would literally let their hair down. And thus you get the, the phraseology, let your hair down. How about the phrase to steal one's thunder, you know, someone to use someone else's ideas and, you know, kind of take credit for them. John Dennis, an 18th century English playwright, claimed to have developed a technique for producing the sound of thunder for his theater production, Atlas and Virginia, in London. When his approach was copied by rivals for the production of Macbeth, Dennis accused them of stealing his thunder, stealing his way of producing the sound of thunder in, in, in the theater. And so that's where, that's where the phrase comes from. How about bite the bullet? You know, where's this come from? Well, it was first used in Rudyard Kipling's novel, The, 
the light that failed, but it's said to develop from the practice of people having a bullet placed between their teeth when they had to go through a surgical procedure without any anesthesia. So they literally bit the bullet. How about one more? Meet a deadline. Where's, where's this come from? You know, where's the word deadline? The word deadline was used in the early 1860s to describe a line drawn within or around a prison that a conflict convict passes at the risk of getting shot. Some of the first references emerged in the Civil War in Civil War journals kept by active soldiers. By the mid-20th century, the word was used as a time-related term, but it originally referred to the line around a prison that if you pass that line, then you were going to get shot. And so there's the concept, or at least the origin, the genesis of the, of the word deadline, and then meet a deadline turns out to be something about, hey, there's a line and you got to reach it and that's your time-related thing. So there you go. How about that? Some fascinating sort of stories of what's behind these various powerful phrases. And I was thinking about just this idea of phrases and words as it relates to the internet world in which we live today. You know the phrase clickbait? It means that publishers purposely write these headlines and sometimes they're deceiving, they're not truthful, they're not accurate, just to get people to click on the article because revenue can be produced by clicks, not necessarily how long someone stays on a site. Those are other ways of, of evaluating creating revenue, certainly. But the idea that just clicks, you know, can you get a click? So clickbait. So you just see how significant words are. And again, you don't have to be a guy like me that, you know, sort of devotes his life to the written spoken word to appreciate it and, and value the power that words can have. And it's interesting to learn the background behind words, and it's interesting to see how phrases develop and how they impact our culture and our lives. But I think most significantly, it's important to understand, as I said earlier, that we don't just sort of miscommunicate because we expect people to take our phrases and demand that they be used the way we want them to be used, but really understanding what do people mean when they use a phrase like that. You know, sometimes people just pick up phrases like toxic masculinity, for instance. They just sort of grab it. They don't really even mean it the way that maybe other people mean it. And so just like learning about the background behind these common phrases, these idioms, these, you know, these phrases that we use today, it's important to try to understand each other better and say, what do you mean by that? How are you using that phrase? Because words absolutely do impact attitudes. As I said before, they, they absolutely impact perceptions that people have. And so it is vitally important and certainly behavior. And so we just really need to make sure that we are communicating with one another in the best possible way, not speaking over or past people. And the best way I know how to do that is to understand the value of words, the power that words have, and to do our best to try to understand each other and how it is that we're using those words. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing you next week on Point of Impact. And again, I just want to 
remind you, subscribe to Point of Impact podcast, share this with your friends, share on social media. And if you want a free copy of my best-selling book, Turn Your Setbacks into Comebacks, the first 10 people who write a review and send me a pic that shows it, a screenshot, whatever that shows the review, info at rcc-impact.com. Email info at rcc-impact.com. Include your mailing address, and we will send you a free book for your review. Thanks so much, and I look forward to talking with you again next week. You've been listening to the Point of Impact podcast with Rick McDaniel. Thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode. 